Titus chapter 3. Now, as we've been looking through the book here, Apostle Paul uh, has been telling this young man, Titus, on how to get the elders appointed in the church and built up and strengthened and their character and their qualifications. Then he pointed out to um, the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women. And then he concentrated on uh, the employees, if you would, uh, those servants to their masters, which was uh, more than 50% of the population at that time in the Roman society, and the attitude they should have and how they can be a witness in the workplace. And then we saw last week, now he begins to say, tell the Christians, speak it boldly, emphatically, powerfully, uh, these things. And again, he keeps coming back with the same thing. Remember, on top of all these things, to maintain uh, a pattern of good works. And then last week in Titus 3, 1, he said, remind them to be subject to rulers, authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. And now here tonight, finishing that sentence, and to speak evil of no one. Be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. The Roman government was one government you would want to overthrow. It was evil and wicked, and it was built upon the backs of slaves, and they had no value, they had no right. You could discard a slave like you could a piece of trash. They had the total right to kill their slaves if they wanted. Um, And on top of that, it was an increasingly immoral society. Um, It basically, the Roman society, it was the fourth world ruling empire, and it basically destroyed itself because of its immorality. And uh, so he says, but far as you, first of all, speak evil of no one. And, and this word evil it really doesn't come across the way we would understand the word evil. It, it means to curse them, to treat with contempt uh, that person. It's the word blasphemo, which we get our word blasphemy from it. So it's, it's uh, being just e- ugly towards somebody, saying, you wicked sinner, you know, um, like the woman caught in the act of adultery. Remember the Pharisees were, this woman should be killed. She's an evil, wicked person. And as Christians, we should not look at the sinful world around us like that. We need to look at them as Christ did. What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, have mercy on them. Look at them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He constantly looked at them in in eyes of pity. And this is how we're to look at the world around us. And we also need to be careful thinking ourselves something greater than uh, the world and spirituality. We're just sinners saved by grace. Did anybody go without sinning today? Raise your hand. I'll give you the pulpit here. We sin every day, don't we? We don't mean to. We don't want to. We hate it. We fight it. And I hope you're not giving into it and just saying, well, this is just the way I am. I'm going to keep sinning. I hope that's not your attitude. I can tell you now I sin less than I used to sin. And I look over the decades of being a Christian. Man, I have grown considerably. Of course, if I compare myself to last week, I get depressed. But if I compare myself to 10 years ago, I feel pretty good because I have seen growth. The things that used to stumble me don't stumble me. But there's still many areas of my life that are way from being perfected. 
And so the heart of the Christian is not to be a Pharisee condemning people, turning our nose up at people. When we hear they're living together in fornication or the guy has got pornography in his house or some other kind of sin, we don't want to treat them like a Pharisee treated the woman caught in the act of adultery or the woman of Samaria with a self-righteous attitude. I hope the world does gross you out. I hope the sin of the world does bother you. I know I used to love to watch violent movies. You know, the bang, bang, shoot them up, car races, you know. I, I can't watch them anymore. It just grieves me when I see people fighting. It grieves me when I see um, the evil guys. I'm, I'm always watching the movie going, share the Lord with them, share the Lord with them. You know, I mean, that's my heart. It's crying out. It's not kill him you know, break his neck. That's not my heart. And so I can't watch it anymore because when I see the good guy who's a horrible sinner himself uh, taking it out on this, you know, criminal, my heart isn't, let's rip his head off and kill him and shoot him up. And, you know, often at the end of those movies, uh, you know, the guy doesn't die, but he dies in some explosion, you know, or some hideous way. And uh, it's to satisfy the vengeance that they've created within you towards this character. My heart doesn't do that. My heart is like Jesus's. They don't know what they're doing. They're, they're sinning and they need to be saved. They need to hear the gospel. And so don't love evil, but don't despise those who are struggling with it. So there is a place where you can hate the sin and still love the sinner. Have compassion on the sinner. And uh, I remember hearing an uh, interview by Billy Graham. And, and uh, the guy asked him, he said, so does God hate homosexuals? That was the question. Thinking he was giving Billy Graham a loaded question. And Billy Graham said, I can emphatically tell you, God loves the homosexual. And he goes, are you saying then that you think homosexuality is okay? And he said, no, not at all. It's a sin. I'm not going to say it's worse than any other sin, but it's a sin that needs to be repented of. But I thought you said God loved the homosexual. The guy couldn't put the two together. It's if you disapprove of his sin, then you despise the person. And Billy Graham was trying to help this guy see, no, 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 no. I can hate the sin and still have tremendous love and compassion for the sinner. And that's what he's pointing out here. And again, when you're around corruption all day, I've been down in Mexico City and uh, we were in parts where we were trying to have a concert. And the whole time we were trying to have the concerts, all the drug dealers showed up because that was their opportunity to get a bunch of drugs sold in the building at the concert. And I I can remember this drug dealer trying to sell these drugs to this 10-year-old kid at the concert. And I just remember I truly wanted to kill this guy. In my heart, I was going, you are the most despicable human being on this planet. I mean, in my heart, I was just, I had such anger. And I had to wrestle with this very point. This guy is lost. I mean, anybody 
that has no conscience of selling drugs to a 10-year-old kid at a Christian concert, he is completely blind to who he is and his sin. And then I just wrestled there until finally I had compassion for this guy. But that's often our first, re- our first reaction to the child molester or the rapist or the guy who's broke into your house and stole your stuff. <laughs> you know, you can hypothetically say, oh yeah, I love criminals, I can love them. But when they just destroyed your things, all of a sudden, you know, I love all the criminals who don't break into my house, but my house, ah, you know. And you have to wrestle with these things. And so it's important that we don't have any evil, malicious, contemptible thing to say concerning sinners, and especially those sinners who are in authority, but to be peaceable in an immoral, wicked, perverted society to not be angry with them. That's literally what this is saying. Not be peaceable, as in a lot of times people picture Jesus like a doormat. Oh, he's just so peaceful. Even if you spit in his face, you know, he would just wipe it away and blow you a kiss, you know. Um, Jesus wasn't that way. Look at Jesus. He had a whip in his hand, turning over money-changing tables, driving people out of the temple. He was a man's man at times. But he was never angry with the sinner, even then. He had compassion. And so don't let the world and its perversion and its sinfulness cause you to be angry with the world, to be angry with man. We don't fight against what? flesh and blood, but we fight against principalities and powers. And it's so important that we get that. I remember in that Corey Timboom movie, they were found out that they had been hiding Jews there in their house in Holland. And the Nazis came in and ripped the house to pieces. And, and uh, they didn't find the Jews. But then they're taking them outside and her father is getting close to 80. And the German guy is just hitting him with the butt of the gun and knocking him down and putting him up in the cart. And Corey, who's looking at her dad being so abused, and this guy, this young Nazi who has no respect for an older man and just treating him horribly, she just had such an anger in her heart. And her dad said, Don't hate them, Corey. Love them, for they are the apple of God's eye. God loves the sinner. And he who sins much ends up loving much because God forgave him so much. And in essence, he's saying, these Nazis who are being wicked, trying to destroy God's only, his own chosen people are the people that Jesus is targeting above everyone else. When Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, that's what he came. He came for the most despicable sinners. He came for the people that were the most perverted, the most wicked, the most full of hate. And we got to understand that, that those are God's target of people. And then um, she's in the concentration camp. 
And her and her sister are being treated just unbelievably horrible. And finally, her sister, who's now up in her 60s and having to pick up giant pieces of metal and take it to be burnt down, and she can't move. And in those things, when you get sick, you're like a piece of machinery that's broken, that can't be fixed. They just kill you. And so she saw her sister couldn't walk, and, and these guards were just treating her sister so horrible. And there's one guard in particular that really just hated her and her sister and just treating them, treated them horribly. And uh, her sister kept saying, Corey, don't hate them, love them. Love them, forgive them. And Corey just saw her sister finally whittling away and she died. And her heart was so full of rage and, and she had to wrestle till she finally forgave that guy. Well, after she got out and years later, she's now touring the world up in her 80s herself, speaking at all these places about the love and the forgiveness of God and saying in the most darkest places, the places where it's the deepest full of hate, Jesus is there. Jesus' love is there. His mercy and grace and forgiveness is there no matter how hideous of a place you can go. I've been to the bottom. (laughs) You can't go any lower than I went. And Jesus and his love and forgiveness were there. Well, afterwards, a guy came up and he began to talk to her and she recognized him. It was that guard. And his eyes were full of tears. And he said, can you please forgive me? And in her heart, she realized the hate was still there. She literally turned away and walked away from the guy. And she went back to her hotel room and she was so ashamed of herself that here's this guy broken, been touched by the gospel and she couldn't say, I forgive you even though it's been decades since that happened and, and there God had to put a deeper love in her heart that she had not yet experienced. She'd been turning at this time for 20 years telling her story but yet there was still a deeper work that God had to do in her heart. And so this is something we always have to be wrestling with. It's always something we have to come back to. To not speak evil of anyone and to be peaceful without anger towards the sinful man that we live around. But to be gentle. Again, moderate, fair, forbearing, kind. But to have that heart that in in response to their wickedness and to being evil, we don't return evil for evil, but we return evil for good. And so when man is being unfair, man is being unjust, and in this wicked world we live in, often evil is good and good is evil. You're punished for being good and you're rewarded for being evil. My kids often will say, well, that's just not fair. I say, whoever said this world's going to be fair, it's not going to be. And if you're expecting to get fairness on this planet, you're going to become a very, very bitter person. This life is often not fair. And we don't live long enough to see things come full circle. There in Psalm 73, the psalmist wrote, and he said, I was stumbled. I saw how wicked the wicked were being and they were prospering because of their wickedness. I saw the righteous man being righteous and he was being cursed for being righteous. And I stumbled. And then I went into the house of God. 
And there the Lord reminded me that there's life after death. That you may not get your payment here, but you will get your payment throughout all of eternity, good or evil. There'll be an eternal reward forever and ever and ever for those who have done righteously before God. It may never pay off for you on this planet. Being a Christian, being a faithful wife or husband, being a good employee, being honest, whatever it is, you'll often find that it doesn't pay off in this country or in this world, but it will pay off when we stand face to face with our Lord. And those who aren't getting punished now for their evil, they will be for all of eternity. And so don't be stumbled by that fact, but be gentle. I love the way Jesus was. Look at Matthew chapter 12, if you would. And look at Jesus. Here's a perfect picture of him. In Matthew chapter 12. There in verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Verse 19. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flack he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. So Jesus' character wasn't one of these guys that you see on TV sometimes, screaming at people, wiping their brow because of their sweat of, you know, ah, you know, and they're that yelling spirit. That wasn't Jesus. He wasn't, you wouldn't have heard him screaming out in the streets. You wouldn't have heard him quarreling with people. In a bruised reed, he wasn't going to break. In other words, you go into a, a vineyard or you go into, a, um, say, an olive grove or orange grove, and there's a, a limb that's broken and just sort of hanging on barely. You know, a lot of times you just say, oh, there's a little broken thing, break it off the rest of the way and pick your teeth with it, you know? If he saw a little tiny branch, he wouldn't just break it off. He would bend it back and mend it and let it grow back and heal. So the woman caught in the act of adultery, he didn't say, stoner. He said, I don't condemn you. Who are your condemners? They've all left, Lord. Well, neither, neither do I condemn you. Go, but sin no more. Sin hurts. Sin destroys. But he's not going to snap something off. The woman at the well, it says she came in the heat of the day. There in Samaria, the women didn't go to the well at the heat of the day. They went early in the morning. That was a time all the gals got together and socialized and took their sweet little time helping each other get water while they discussed the day's business. But she was out there by herself. Why? She was an outcast. Even from her society, because she'd been married five times before, and the guy she was living with wasn't her husband. But there's Jesus. He didn't just break it off, or, or the candle, you know, you have the candle and the oil in those days, and you see the, the little bit of wick that's left, and it's getting ready to go out. A lot of times they just snuff it out and pull that little piece left that's left and throw it away, and then get a new big long wick and put it there inside the bowl with the oil. Jesus didn't do that. 
He would keep it going, keep that little bit of wick, whatever's left, he would keep it burning. He wouldn't just snuff it out. And so often we look at people and they've sinned. Satan has diminished them to almost nothing. We have people in our church that were literally moments away from death because there were drunkards in the street, alcoholics and drug addicts. I mean, they were completely a foot away from death. But they got saved, and now they're amazing people here in our church. They were that broken little reed. They were that little wick of candle that was getting ready to get snuffed out. But there we see the Lord came, and he didn't snuff them out or quench them out. But again, he was the kind of person that was gentle and kind. It also says, showing all humility to all men. Look at Matthew 11 there, if you would. Verse 28 to 30. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and what? Lowly of heart. That's the same as saying humble. I'm in humility. And you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. God says a lot of heavy things. But when we're obeying, those heavy things aren't heavy to us. You see, tonight, if you have a drinking problem, and I just mentioned being an alcoholic, you're going, oh man, he talks about alcoholism every single week. No, I don't. Haven't mentioned that probably in months. But in your mind, it's every week because you're convicted by it. Why does Brian always have to have such convicting messages? It's not convicting if you're obeying. It's only convicting to you because you're not doing it. And so Jesus' message, although they may be weighty, if you will just take up his yoke and put it upon yourself. Now that's an interesting concept because the yokes are those big giant wooden blocks they put on top of oxen. But maybe you didn't know something, but in those big blocks, they actually carved them individually for each ox. They would take their backbones and they had specialists and they would carve it out so it would set perfectly upon that particular ox's skeleton structure so it didn't dig into its back and and eat away the skin and blister it all up. It was like a perfect glove setting upon the back of it there, just fit like a glove. But it's interesting that Jesus here says, Take my yoke and put it upon you. Now, the big old giant ox, even though it's a big giant block, and then they would put the reins to the block so they could have enough weight to turn that big heavy ox. He says, even though it's a big giant heavy wooden block, if you'll take my yoke and fit yourself into it, let your skeleton structure mold into the shape of Jesus Christ you'll find that that even though that big giant block is on you, like the oxen, he doesn't even know it's there. He's so big and strong. If you'll fit into my yoke, even though it's big and giant and heavy, it won't feel that way. It'll be easy and light, like a big oxen who has his yoke upon himself. And how are we going to get there? He's gentle. He's humble. 
He's not going to scream your way into obedience. He's not going to beat you into obedience. He's a shepherd, not a cattle driver. And so you're not going to find somebody who's this giant, charismatic person who's going to finesse you into obedience. You're in the presence of somebody who's very humble, very gentle, somebody who's not pushy, somebody that's not going to be pushy. Even if you'd say, could you be a little pushy to help me? He's not going to do it because that's not his nature. But if you will humble yourself, take his yoke upon you, then you'll find that life that's full of rest for your soul. And so we also, like Jesus, are not to be hateful toward the world around us, even though their sinful ways grieve us greatly. We're not to be angry with them, even though there's good reason to be angry at their sin. Don't be angry at the sinner. But then to be gentle and to show humility towards all men. There's always hope. And you know what? You look back in the scriptures at the Jacob type of guys. Remember Jacob? He was always such a sly, crafty thief of a guy, isn't he? Stealing his birthright from his brother and tricking his father-in-law, Laban, and always being slick and always trying to get the upper hand. But I love that in Isaiah 43. He says, I made you, O Jacob, and I formed you, O Israel. You are mine. And so we've got to realize the shady, snake-like people are sometimes the people God calls unto salvation. And their shady, snake-like things don't disappear the day after they get saved. Sometimes it takes years before we start seeing Jacob completely dead and Israel completely reigning. And God's wrestling with them. He's meek, he's gentle, he's lowly of heart, but the Spirit of God is wrestling with them, trying to bring them to the place that they would let go of those slick, conniving, snake-like ways and become the honest, godly person that's Israel, governed by God. And so we also have to understand that it's going to take time. We've got to be patient and loving and gentle with people until they get there. Speak the truth. Speak the word, but in love. And there in verse 3, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Does this sound like a pretty good description of you in your BC days before Christ? Some of you guys are smiling, going, it sort of sounds like me now. Um, Yeah, but probably in lesser proportions than before you got saved. I'm so glad that God's working with us. We were also once, that's who we were, speaking of this, by nature. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, passage you might know well, says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by 
the Spirit of our God. Now, what's interesting about that passage is the verse previous to verse 9. In verse 8, he said, why are you guys cheating each other? Why are you taking each other to court? Wouldn't it be rather to be wronged and not defame the name of Jesus? So he's talking to the church and he's saying, you guys are still being extortioners. But it's not who you are anymore. You become a new creature in Christ. All the old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's not who you are by nature. You may be struggling with being an extortioner right now. You may be uh, you know, struggling with being dishonest in business towards this fellow person in the church. But you've been a bit, you're a born-again believer. That's not who you are by nature anymore. So let God's Spirit rule in your life. But again, remember what it's like when you were struggling like that. I mean, I've never been an alcoholic. By the grace of God, I never will be. So when I see somebody struggling with alcohol, I'm just, stop drinking. Just don't do it anymore. Now, I know that's a ridiculous statement because they're addicted. And even though in a moment of soberness, they will 100% agree with me. But that's not the moment they're struggling with alcoholism, is it? It's at the end of the day and their body's achy and they feel depressed and they feel overwhelmed. They feel stressed out. Um, somebody gets them angry. All these different emotions come and in the moment of weakness, they're tempted to drink again. Now, somebody who once was an alcoholic for 10 years and now they haven't been for 20 years and now they're looking at this person who's struggling with alcohol going, look, you're married, you have two little kids at home, you're gonna run your life and they can't get angry with them, can they? Because they know, look, I was an alcoholic for myself for 20 years. I know how hard it is not to drink. I realize how addictive it is. But by the grace of God, I am what I am today. And so you can have mercy and compassion. And this is the whole point. Remember, whatever the sin may be, anger or covetousness or lying or stealing or whatever it is, remember you. Remember back. You used to be held under bondage to these kind of things. You were also that foolish person. This word foolish here means uninformed. You just had no concept of how holy God was, how pure God was, how loving God was, how kind God was. People often who get saved are just going, I had no idea how fun the Bible and church and God and man, if I had known this when I was a teenager, I never would have wasted the next 20 years of my life. But Satan, who's very good, kept them blinded to keep them from seeing the love of God, the grace of God, got them hooked on drugs or alcohol or perverted into sex and, and all of a sudden they wake up 20 years later and their life is a shambles and, and they come to Christ. They were just blinded. They were completely ignorant. And so have pity upon them in their ignorance. Don't be angry at them in their ignorance. They're disobedient. Again, the word here is, is just very clear. They're just out and out rebellious against the things of God. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? The depths of our wickedness go far deeper than we could ever imagine. But that was us. 
Before Christ's spirit came in our life, circumcised that old foreskin and got rid of it, that was us. We were completely ignorant of the things of God. We were completely rebellious against God because our wicked nature was driving us deeper and deeper into whatever sin we were involved in. Also, we were deceived. In Revelation 12, 9, it says, So that great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth. His angels were cast out with him. Notice there, he deceives the whole world. Right now, the world is just in complete deception. I was noticing some of the advertisements the other day, and it seems like the whole lineup of all the sitcoms that are going to be coming out in the next few weeks are just trying to blast Christianity. It seems like that's all they're doing, is just trying to make Christianity look absolutely stupid and trying to make the Bible look absolutely ridiculous. I, I was just amazed. The one advertisement come on, and here's the new show coming on. And all it was doing was blasting Christians. Here's the next show coming out. All it was, I mean, they were quoting the Bible, out and out, reading. One, one had, actually had the Bible in their hand, saying, this is so stupid. And I was just amazed, just going, Satan's come out of the closet about this. He's just going to out and out attack Christianity trying to make anybody who goes to church on Sunday or says, I believe the Bible, look like a complete fool. And unfortunately, the world's gonna take Satan's candy right out of his hand and eat that poison until he's just gonna indoctrinate them over and over again. The Bible is stupid. God is stupid. The church is stupid. Everything going on in the church is lame. The world is where it's really at. They have the answers. And uh, so again, you've got to understand, they're just believing the, the brainwashing of Satan and the lies of Satan. That's why we need to be careful not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Um, several years back, uh, I was at a high school camp speaking, and one of the high school pastors spoke. And he was reading a, a report that they had put together in their high school. It was a very large church, and it was a questionnaire that uh, one of the um, high school pastors had put together and gave to the youth group that was several hundred people. And some of the questions were amazing. How many hours a day do you watch MTV? These kids were watching 20 hours a week of MTV. Have you drank alcohol? Yes. Who was the first person that gave you alcohol? This is in a church school. And like 75% of the kids got their first alcohol from their parents. And then they went on asking the questions, uh, different TV shows, despicable TV shows. And they watched those shows with their parents. And you, you look at the whole picture, their parents know they're sitting there watching MTV. They're sitting there watching with them these horrible shows on TV. They're the ones saying, oh, take a little sip of wine here. It's no big deal. They're taking their first alcohol from their parents' hand. And you go on down the list and you realize, man, Satan has a hold of the church as well. And so often people come to church and they hear the message and they walk out going, I didn't get it. Well, if your mind's filled with the world, filled with all Satan's lies, 
what good is one hour sermon going to do? I mean, the whole idea here is that we're in the word, we're seeking the Lord, and then we come together as a family and we worship God together. Of course, we're worshiping God all the time. We're in the word all the time and we're coming to be further instructed in God's word, building upon what God's speaking to you. But you can't expect to go get filled with 60 hours of the world's junk and then to be able to come in and freely worship God. You can't go home tonight and turn on and watch some despicable show and then plan on watch, waking up tomorrow morning with your heart, with this hunger to read the word and seek the Lord and tell others about Jesus. No such thing can happen. And so don't let you be deceived. We know the world's deceived, but don't you go along with that deception. Break out of it. Don't be lured into it and be brought down by it. And also, again, serving various lusts and pleasures. In, in Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 3, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Just put up your cell and let the wind blow you. Let Satan direct you in the way he wants you to go. According to the prince of the power of the air. Again, Satan looks like a prince. Oh, you know. Again, you look at the music or the, the glitter the world has to throw at you. It's amazingly beautiful. If Satan were to appear right now before us, the first thing we would be amazed at is his beauty. Go back and read in Isaiah and Ezekiel. It says he was the seal of perfection. And one of the ways he was perfect was in beauty. We'd be amazed at all of the multi-rainbow colors and the glitter and the, we'd be in awe of his beauty. Don't be lured in by the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. They're rich, they're famous, they're powerful. They're, They're going to hell. They don't know Jesus, they're not right with God. They don't have the peace you have. Among whom we also also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Guys, we understand that, right? Just because we feel it doesn't mean we can do it, right? I mean, if you do whatever feels good, I mean, that's the humanistic manifesto. That's the playboy mentality. What feels good, do it. You'll destroy your life. You'll destroy your health. You'll destroy your marriage. You'll destroy your kids. You you will literally destroy everything that's good and wholesome and precious if you let your fleshly appetites dictate what you're going to do. There are times we can do what our appetites want. I feel like cooking whatever tonight, chicken. Well, good, go with your appetite. But if your appetite is, I want to go have sex with somebody other than my wife or husband. Just because you feel that doesn't mean it's right, but that's what the world's telling you. If it would make you happier to be divorced, then be divorced. If it would make you happier to go out and and drink uh, for five hours rather than going home and being with your family, then go out and drink. Whatever feels good, then, you know, that's going to give you peace. And to fight that urge, 
to fight that desire is giving you a lack of peace. So obviously, you need to go with your feelings. That's psychology of today. And once you do what your feelings want, don't feel guilty about it. If you do, come to me and pay me $100 an hour and I'll help you get over it. And if not, I'll give you some drugs so you don't feel the guilt so you can keep doing what your body wants to do. Our bodies, it says in Romans 7, are sold under sin, under bondage. When you got saved, your body did not. When it says all the old things passed away, it's talking about in your spirit. The sin, that sin nature. All things have become new. You're a new creature in Christ. You've been born again. Your body's still the same old sinful body. That's Romans chapter 7, right? Things I don't want to do, I do. Things I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, there's no good thing that dwells in me. Hold it. That's not true. The Spirit of God's in me. Okay, outside the Spirit of God in me and my spirit that's been born again, my body is sold under sin into bondage. Ah, I've learned the principle. Paul says there in Romans 7, my body, like the world, like Satan, is sinful. So it's not just the devil I'm fighting. It's, I'm also fighting the prince of the power of the air, but I'm also fighting the sinful flesh of other people. And I'm fighting my own sinful flesh. So I realize the battle is against my flesh, the world, and the devil. And I have to realize what's going on here. So what's Satan doing? He's trying to get you to fill the appetites, to fill the desires, whatever that desire or appetite might be. Then the world's there to say, I'm doing it. Come along with me. Let's go do it together. I'll help you. I'll be a part of that. And then Satan's demonic powers is there tempting you to say, bow and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. It's not right you to be hungry, Jesus. Go ahead and turn that rock into bread right now. And so we have to realize that we once lived our life and our appetites. Now we live according to what pleases the spirit of God. So I'm either gonna have the peace of this world or the peace of God. And I can't have both. And so I realize when I'm fighting my flesh, I lose the peace of the world. But when I am living obedient to God, then I have the peace of God. And let me tell you something. Whatever the world has to offer you, it never, ever will be worth it. At the end of the day, when the bill comes out, it keeps telling you, it's free, it's free, it's free. But the bill eventually comes out. And when the bill comes out, it'll be far greater than you ever wanted to pay. And so we have to daily beat our bodies into subjection. We daily have to take up that cross and follow Jesus. We daily have to crucify our flesh with its passions and desires. And what's the reward of that? A fruitful life. The fruits of the Spirit. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the self-control, the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. A desire to seek God in prayer, a desire to read the word, a desire to tell others about Christ, uh, the ability to, to be patient and loving and kind. It's worth it. <laughs> so my body doesn't get its way, but all this fruitfulness in my life, you see, it's well worth it. And so that's why we've got to be careful and not grow weary in well-doing. We will reap if we faint not. Again, we also were living in a malicious life, literally vicious in character. Again, 
We don't have to be that way anymore. I was coming up the hill here, and there was a, a wreck evidently, and two of the three lanes were shut down. And so I happened to be in the far uh, left lane, which was open anyway. But I saw the car next to me in the right lane, a little concerned, knowing they are going to have to get over, and there's a you know, 10-mile long line of cars. And he was you know, trying to anticipate the green light and kept jumping. And so the car in front of him, next to him, is like, I know what you're going to do. You're going to try to get in front of me. And no, you're not, buddy. And you could see he was anxious. And as soon as that took off, man, you know, and the guy's having to get over because he's going to hit the police car if he doesn't. And this guy, boy, he is not going to let him get in front. And I, I knew that was going to happen because I live in a sinful world, right? So I just totally waited and slowed down like five cars got in front of me getting up the hill. But I just knew that's the way the world is. They're vicious like that, aren't they? I don't care if you run into that police car. I don't care if you get stopped and all the cars behind you. But if they just let the guy in front and just sort of weave it, it wouldn't even hardly feel like a traffic jam. But people aren't that way, are they? They're malicious. They're, they're, they're forceful. And uh, we're not to be that way. We're not to despise them for being that way. You're getting ready to get in the line at the grocery store. Again, somebody sees you and they're run up in front of you and, you know, go ahead. So item, eight items, you got about 50, you know, go ahead. <laughs> I, I'm, again, we can't, we can't let the world get to us in that way. We were once selfish and malicious like that, envying, again, the desires of just wanting more and more and more can never be satisfied. In Ecclesiastes 1.8, it says, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. A guy doesn't get a Playboy book and say, Oh, I saw it one time. I never want to see another Playboy book. Even after the guy saw a thousand different naked women, is he satisfied? Or does he want to see that 1,001? The, the lust can never be satisfied. Or the desire of the hearing. And so, again, if you're trying to please your flesh, you're only going to create a bigger and bigger and bigger black hole that cannot be satisfied until eventually the black hole collapses and sucks you in with it. So I just want to get high with this one beer. But guess what? After a while, that one beer doesn't do it, does it? I just want to get high with these two beers. But guess what? Those two, two beers don't do it after a while. Well, I just want to get high with a six-pack. Well, guess what? A six-pack doesn't do it anymore. And eventually it grows until your liver can't take it or your behavior is so outrageous, you lose your job or get a, um, a big ticket for being drunk driving. or what. Eventually, the black hole of drinking gets so big, it sucks you in with it and destroys you with drugs or anger or greed or whatever it is. It's the same thing. You have to put it to death. It has to be put to death now. If you don't put it to death now, it will destroy you. And again, that's the way we were in the world. We were equally deceived, equally living according to our lust, equally malicious and envy and hateful. Again, the world is a very hateful place. And and that's why Jesus said, the world will know you by our great power to raise the dead and see the blind eyes open. And the world will know us because of our power, right? The world will know us because of our greatness and how big and powerful of a Christian organization we are. The world will know us because of our love. The world will know us because of our 
kindness. And just being thinking around us. I was at the grocery store today and a little old lady again, I was getting ready to go and she was anxious, you know. We wanted to get in front of me. So I just stopped and just let her get in front of me. And then I started taking the things out of her cart and putting it up. I mean, it was pretty heavy stuff there. And, oh, thank you so much. Just little ways. We can just show the love of Christ. Little ways we can be kind. We don't have to be envious and hateful and trying to beat everybody else down and trying to get one up and get ahead. And then also hating one another. That's where it all ends up, isn't it? When you live according to the flesh, whatever it is, you end up hating. And you know, often the number one person you end up hating more than anybody, it's yourself. And that is a pit that's hard to get out of. Because you hate everything about yourself. And now you're going to make everybody else miserable because you're so miserable. And the fact of the matter is, is when you do come into Christ, you realize he loves you. And I may hate that nose, but he loved it. He made it. I hate this aspect of of my life, but he created it. And then you start to realize God made me unique. God made me in his image. God made me before the foundations of the world. He knew me, predestined me unto himself, a son of his love, that I'm a special treasure in the field that God came to get that treasure. You start to see yourself through God's eyes and you realize, although you may not look like the model on the TV, you look exactly how God wants you to look. And it's the, per, the inner person of the heart that's precious in the eyes of God, not the outward man that's perishing. I'll tell you one thing that grieves me is seeing these gals that used to be so pretty in their 20s and their 30s, and now you see them in their 40s and 50s, and they have so many plastic surgeries. Who are they fooling? Do they think, no one's going to know? You look exactly like your skeleton under your skin. You've pulled that stuff so tight that you can see your skull, and it's gross. Why are you doing that? Because old is ugly in our society. That is such a big lie. And that's why, again, like Christ, what does he look on? He looks on the inner person of the heart, that which is gentle and loving and kind and precious in the eyes of God. That should be our focus. And so again here, we were in this tornado, hating, spiteful, malicious, envying, living according to our lust and our pleasures in this tornado. And everybody we touch got sucked into the tornado and, and then we spit them out and they got beat up. And, and that was us. We were in this vicious cycle trying to satisfy our lusts and our cravings and our desires, living according to what seemed good to us. And we were completely ignorant of the holiness and the righteousness and the purity and the desires that God has for us. And, and we were just in this maze until finally, what happened? Read on in the next verse there in Titus. Verse four. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared... What brought us unto salvation? Romans 2, verse 4. Do you despise the riches of the goodness, the forbearance, the long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads us to repentance? 
day after day, month after month, year after year. We kept seeing God's love and goodness and kindness towards us repeated over and over and over again. And often we saw the love of Jesus through others until finally we came to that place where we realized, wow, that's the love I need in my life. That's the kindness I need in my life. That's the kind of marriage I need. I need to be like that guy over there. I think he's a big nerd, but he has a good marriage. Of course, in his deceived mind, being a Christian man is a nerd. Being a Christian man's not a nerd at all. We're having a blast. We're having a fun time. But the world's concept is we're a nerd because Satan's deceived them. And they see the good as being evil or nerdy or stupid or backwards or ancient or uncustomary or whatever it is. But when God saves them and takes the blinders off, then they're going to go, man. I can't tell you how many times I've had people come up and tell me, I had this guy I worked with, and man, he, would, kept, he kept being so loving and kind, and I gave him such a hard time, and he tried to invite me to church and share the Lord with me. And for 10 years, I gave that guy a havoc, and then I moved away, and I got saved. Man, I wish I could find that guy to tell him. Let me tell you something. It looked like you had no effect on me whatsoever, but your kindness, it drove like a knell through my heart every time. I treated you so badly, and you were so kind. And it was that 10 years of abuse <laughs> that brought him to the Lord. And so let me tell you something, guys. You are affecting it. The world may say, oh, you know, great. You want to be a doorbat? I'll step on you. Great. Let me step on you. And you may think you're not having an effect. You are having an effect. Don't let Satan lie to you. And it may be 50 years, but don't give up. Living for God and doing things his way, it will pay. And in verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So now coming back, this is always a catch-22. The James chapter 2, verses the Romans 4. We're not saved by our works, but the good works is what shows that we're saved. You can't have works without, you can't have faith without works. So works don't save me. Well, I'm doing all these good things, so now I'm going to go to heaven. No. We are saved by the grace of God. But how, I mean, God knows, but how do we know a person's saved? We will see the works in their life. You see, if the Holy Spirit really has come into your life, we're going to see the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Now, if we don't see that, it's probably because it didn't happen well, I got to do all these good works to be saved and that's what you're saying. No. I'm saying if the Lord is really the Lord of your life, then he's going to be the Lord of your mouth. He's going to be the Lord of your hands. He's going to be the Lord of your finances. He's going to be the Lord of your time. He's going to be the Lord of, in your marriage and how you raise your kids and how you deal in business. We're going to see that he really is the Lord of your life and how you conduct yourself. Not perfectly, but we need to see there's a change and that it's growing. Well, I'll just make that change and start doing it. Well, you'll find out quickly you can't. If you're not a born-again believer, you're going to find out that your nature really is sinful. And the more you're trying to be patient, the more you get bitter about trying to be patient. Until finally you blow and you realize, 
I don't, I can't be a patient person. And you'll discover that without God in your life, you really can't live the life. You can have momentary lapses of kindness, but you can't really live the life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. It has to be a part of your nature that God makes you by the power of a spirit. So it's not of works of righteousness that we're saved, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing, regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Guys, we are saved by God having pity upon us. And I'm so glad he did. There's that verse in Romans chapter nine. It says, it's not to him who wills or him who runs, but it's God who shows mercy. Now, someone says, well, then if it's upon God, me being saved, then it's upon God that I'm not saved. The Bible doesn't say that. So if God doesn't have mercy upon me and I'm unsaved, then I'm as in much God's will being unsaved as a person who is saved. And here's the Lord's reaction. Who are you, O clay, to speak against the potter? God can have mercy upon one vessel and he can have judgment upon another if he so wills. doesn't say he does, but it says if he so wills. I mean, God is God. It's his bat, it's his ball, it's his field. He invented the game. He's the umpire. He's the pitcher. I mean, it's, it's not like you have another choice here. If God is God, there is one God, you're not gonna line up and say, oh, okay, which God do I wanna go to? There's Buddha, there's Allah, there's Jesus. Uh, you know, there's one God, guys. And when we stand before him, there's no jury. There's no voting, there's no polls. It's what God says, period. That's the end of story. And those who don't like it, they can separate themselves from him for all eternity in hell. So my attitude is, God have mercy upon me. I throw myself on the ground and say, God have mercy on me. Make me a vessel of mercy. Make me a vessel that you forgive. I realize you are God and I am not. I realize you are the creator of all things and you started it and you can end it whenever you want. You can choose today to pour out mercy upon me, forgiveness upon me, or not. It's 100% dependent upon you and I submit to you, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To fear God is to depart from evil. Those are three Proverbs. And if you understand, he is everything. I love that where Nebuchadnezzar figured that out in Daniel chapter four. God's above everything. He can humble whomever he chooses. He can do whatever he wants. His reign will be without end. And as man, he is as counted as nothing before God. And then Nebuchadnezzar's reasoning came back to him. And so I fear the Lord. I'm not gonna play games with him. I realize it's by his mercy I'm saved and I'm just thankful for it. And I don't wanna now say, well, well, now that I'm saved, how much sin can I sin and still be saved? How loose of a Christian life can I live and still go to heaven? How much of the world can I experience and still be right with God? You know what? I don't even think twice about those kind of games because I know who God is. And he is awesome. 
He is powerful. And I'm not going to toy with him. I don't want him toying with me. (laughs) I'm not going to play any games with him. He is God. He came and loved me. He died for me, rose again, that I might live a holy life. Guess what I'm going to live? A holy life, because I know that's what he wants. And I'm not going to play the game. Where's the fence? Where's the line? So I can go live right next to the line. There's no way. I'm going to live holy as he is holy. But Brian, you could do this and get away with it. You know what? That's the biggest lie from Satan. God sees everything and knows everything. I so appreciate the mercy he has shown upon me. I want to live all my days just in appreciation to his mercy. I mean, we're not even talking about the phenomenal thing of him coming in human flesh and dying in our place upon the cross. That's just, it's almost beyond what I can comprehend. But realizing the great mercy and love and kindness he's had towards us, we should just fall upon our face and be thankful. And then he says, we've been washed. All our sins are taken away, buried in the deepest sea, scattered as far as the east is to the west. And we've been renewed by the Holy Spirit. That's where we want to be. Just so thankful for this great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. As a gift, he has saved us by grace as a gift. And then it says in verse six, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our savior. This salvation, this work of the spirit that's happened in us, he wasn't cheesy with it. He poured out his forgiveness. He poured out his love. He poured out his spirit into our hearts. In John chapter 10, verse 10, The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life, that they may have it more abundantly. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to pour his spirit in our lives. He came to show mercy and love and forgiveness. You know what? I know that God's going to forgive me. Now, some person in their deviant heart says, 100% of the time, 100% 100% of the time. Well, let me go sin then. Because I know he'll forgive me. See, my heart's the opposite. I'm not worried about not being forgiven because God's let the cat out of the bag. He's going to 100% forgive me. But because of that very thing makes me never want to sin again. Because I know how much he loves me that he set my heart at ease saying, Wherever your sin abounds, my grace will abound more. That makes me love him even more. That makes me want to live a holy life even more. It doesn't say taking advantage. You see, that's somebody that tells me the Holy Spirit's not in their life. If somebody says, ah, where sin abounds, grace abounds more, all right, I can really live a carnal life and still go to heaven. Guess what? I think that's a real key that you're not even saved. That would be like my wife, if I was, my wife were to say, you know what? Every time you throw your dirty clothes on the floor, I'm just gonna pick them up and wash them and put them where they go. Oh, great. Then I'll really throw more things in the floor. You see, if that was my attitude, I have no respect or no love for my wife whatsoever, do I? But the fact that she's saying, you know what? No matter how big of a slob you are, I'm gonna love you and do what I can to make your life as organized as I can. That should make my heart say, I don't want to give her more work to do. 
I want to love her. She's telling me how much she's willing to care for me. I, in my heart, should say, I want to care for her a million times more than that. You see? And now I know what pleases her. What pleases her is for me not to throw my clothes in the floor. So therefore, I want to do what blesses her because I know how much she loves me. That's the kind of response a true born-again heart has towards the Lord. He's washed us. He's regenerated us. He's poured out his spirit upon us abundantly. Verse 8, this is a faithful saying. These things I want you to affirm constantly. Brian, this sort of sounds like the last couple of weeks you've been saying the same thing. I know. And you're going to hear it some more. This is the whole theme of this book. Just say it over and over again. That those who have believed, in other words, they really are born-again believers, and they are really in God, should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So tell the Christians, those who really are Christians, guys, do more. Do more. Serve more. Give more. Love more. Give of yourself more. You can't outgive God. Here's the word of the Lord. Remember what Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 15 I labor more than all, but not I, the grace of God. God can give you a greater grace. For four years, I went out to Donovan Prison. I would preach two services here. I would go out there and preach two services. I would finish the fourth service there, get just back in time to preach Sunday night. And then I'd get up early on Monday morning, and I'd be out there 12 hours every day on Monday, teaching Bible studies, had a pastor's college, do some um, sermons there and, and do some leadership training. And people would say, man, Brian, you do so much. You know what? Honestly, there were some weeks I couldn't do it. I had less energy. I had more energy when I did it. And honestly, I was so filled. It was never, man, this thing's really draining me. It was never that way. It energized me. It gave me more strength. God spoke to me more in those Bible studies than anywhere else. I received more. At those end of those two days, I had more maturity in my own life. I learned more of the word. I had more strength, more energy. And I learned that the more you give, the more God's going to meet you in your giving. If you're growing weary and well-doing, it's very simple. You're sinning. It's that simple. You're sinning. You're, not, you're living a compromising life. Some area of your life, you're compromising spiritually, and that's draining you of your spiritual energy. Repent of that sin. Your first love will come back, and you'll find the grace of God to do everything you were doing and more. But often the person's sinning and they're going, no, man, I just don't have the energy to, let's say, teach Sunday school anymore. So now they don't teach Sunday school. Guess what? They have less energy now because that was the one thing in their life that was keeping them in the word. That was the one thing in their life where they had to pray and say, God, I'm so empty and I gotta go teach these kids. How am I gonna teach on, on empty like this? And it caused them to have some spiritual tension in their life to press in on the Lord. Now that's gone as if that one hour a week was gonna, oh, oh, whew, man, man, I got so much energy now. 
Oh, I didn't realize that teaching that one-hour Sunday school class a week was just killing my life. You're going to find out that that one hour is not going to change things as far as time-wise that much at all. But the, the fact is, is you have no spiritual energy. Remember Isaiah 40. If you wait on the Lord in the word, in prayer, seeking God, you're renewed in strength. You first start off flying like an eagle. Then you hit the ground, you start running, and then you walk, and you don't get tired, you don't get weary, you don't faint. And so I speak to you guys who are really born-again Christians. Love God. Love Him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. It's good and profitable for you now on earth and for all your fellow man on earth, but it's also profitable towards God. When you see him face to face in heaven, you're gonna say it was worth it. All I gave, all I did, all my serving, beating my body in subjection, being in the word, being in prayer, living for God, maintaining the life of good works and even growing in greater good works. Now that I see what it spells out, wow. Wow. I had no idea the rewards were this amazing. Flesh, whoa, oh, I had no idea this kind of damage could happen from just living a life with that little bit of flesh life. Now look at all this damage from that little bit of flesh life. Don't be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Oh man, I just did this little bit of thing. Remember when he comes and separates the sheep from the goats? The sheeps, he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was naked in prison, you visited me, you clothed me, you... And what did the sheep say? When did we do those things? They, they were just living the Christian life. They were just doing that which was in their heart. It wasn't some great thought process. Okay, I'm a Christian. Be a Christian. What would a Christian do in this situation? Okay, how much reward would that give me in heaven? Okay, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. I mean, it's not that kind of thing. You do what's in your heart, but hopefully what's in your heart is a heart that's free, weed all the weeds out, all the flesh life and sin life and compromise, all those weeds are out and your heart's free to just serve the Lord with 100% passion. And I'm to tell you constantly and affirm constantly to be careful to maintain good works and to even grow in those good works. Amen? Lord, we thank you for the awesome, awesome thing that you have done in choosing us, saving us, making us a part of your family. And I'm constantly in awe that I'm a Christian. I'm constantly in awe that I'm going to heaven. I'm constantly thankful for your great mercy and grace, your goodness and your kindness and your love. And Lord, I just thank you right now that your loving kindness and tender to mercies have led us back to a place of repentance over and over again. Thank you, thank you, and thank you. And we ask in Jesus' name here tonight, Lord, that there's anyone here tonight that as your word has been a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path, they realize tonight they're not really born again. They've gone to church, they've known about you maybe for 40 years but they've never truly submitted their lives to you where you are the Lord of their life. If that's your case right now, just cry out in your heart, God, forgive me. Forgive me for playing religion. Forgive me for living a carnal life and 
just thinking I had you checkmated by some verses saying you still have to forgive me even though I've lived this horrible, wicked life. Forgive me. I want my life to be pleasing to you in everything, in every way. I want my life to be pleasing to you. Search my heart tonight, Lord. See if there be any wicked way and lead me, Lord. As a good shepherd makes us lie down in green pastures, lead us in the way of everlasting. Heal us tonight, Lord. Strengthen us tonight. Thank you for tonight for this washing of the water of the word. And we just know that you poured us out upon us so abundantly. We thank you and thank you and thank you. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen and amen.